You're listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with author Nina Hall. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. My aim in writing this book is threefold. First, I want to understand how the same form of advocacy organization emerged in such different contexts. What drove the global spread of digital advocacy organizations? Second, I want to contribute to international relations theories of advocacy, which have typically focused on larger international non-governmental organizations, such as Oxfam and Greenpeace, or transnational advocacy networks focused on particular issues, such as climate change, human rights, or landmines. I ask, to what extent do digital advocacy organizations require new IR theories of advocacy? Third, I explore if and how digital advocacy organizations campaign transnationally. After all, many scholars have suggested that the internet would enable more frequent transnational networking and mobilizing. Some have even suggested that digital technology could create a global civil society, as many trans-border civic activists regard themselves as world citizens, in addition to national state citizens. The underlying logic in these arguments is that faster and cheaper international communications will lead to greater international solidarity and more frequent transnational collective action. So as I said in that opening section, some academics, political communication scholars have written about their impact, but not international relations. So that was kind of the launch pad for my research was 2015 and trying to understand how these organizations are working transnationally and what this model means for the scholarship that we have in international relations. Why do you feel it wasn't being looked at? I'm wondering if it's because they have such brief campaigns. It's constantly evolving. Yeah, it's a fair point. So one of the main arguments in the book is that digital technology is important to change how organizations campaign. And it's not a matter of campaigning online or offline, right? There's a, often people hear the title of my book and they go, oh, it's all just slacktivism. You know, whatever you do online, it's slacktivism. Luckily, the academic debates move past that because most advocacy groups operate both online and offline. What I argue instead is that digital technology has enabled groups to be rapid response, like you said, extremely member-driven so they can listen to their members and do something called analytic activism. That's a term coined by David Karp and be multi-issue generalists. So if I have a second, I'll just elaborate on that because the ways that that works is much more than meets the eye. So when you're rapid response, that means a news story can come, you know, on one hour and two hours later, a campaign can be started by the organizations I study. So it could be related to refugee issues. And that's one of the case studies in the book. In 2015, when there was increasing concern about what was happening on Europe's borders with refugees and asylum seekers, some of these groups that had no expertise on refugee rights switched very rapidly when they saw public opinion changing. So digital technologies enable you to do that because you don't have to send out letters. You don't have to go through. They've got light internal hierarchies. But not just that, the fact that they could listen to their members and figure out what their members cared about is also important. And they did that through testing campaigns. So most members are people who have subscribed to a petition or a previous campaign, and the group uses their email address to contact them for future campaigns. And so they might say, okay, you campaigned and you cared about refugees in 2015. Now the climate conference is on in Egypt today. We want you to express your concern about how poorly governments are acting on climate change. And we want to mobilize you to do this action or to sign this petition 
tomorrow. And so they can switch very quickly and they can test which terms will really motivate their members. So they can test subject lines. It's called A-B testing. Do people care more about climate change if they say, we need to tackle climate change today, now, to help your children and your grandchildren, or we need to tackle climate change today to save Antarctica and the penguins. And if we find out that more people care about the penguins, then you can send that campaign out to millions of members. And I'm very interested in how you can take these partnerships with traditional NGOs, how you can take some of these mobilization techniques to build longer term transformation and inclusiveness. So NGOs that have an inbuilt attention to long term campaigning, like Greenpeace campaigning on climate change for decades, Human Rights Watch on human rights issues for decades, or Oxfam on poverty, are seeing the power of trying to mobilize people on the streets and online, right? Because these groups are mobilizing people also on the streets. And then so they have done things like also set up online petitions. And in some cases, members can even start their own petitions. So it's not a member of Oxfam sitting in Oxford or London, but it's a member of, you know, Oxfam who's sitting in Bristol or Norwich, or similarly a member of Greenpeace sitting in Bangkok that starts the campaign and that that has power because if the members are driving it, it's driven by their own passion and concern about something that they can directly see that maybe at a headquarters you're not seeing. So I think one of the really interesting reflections coming out of my research is the relationship between staff who are now very professionalized in many NGOs and a broad range of members sitting in very many places and understanding how digital technology can enable people or staff to give over more power and autonomy to their members. And that can, that can open up the organization to, to new ideas and new changes. It doesn't necessarily always good. I don't want to suggest that it's always beneficial for organizations. There's obviously tensions, but it is one feature that I think is interesting in terms of organizational form. It's very interesting, these implications for international relations. And I'm wondering if you feel it as a step towards democracy for a digital age, you know, even more participatory beyond signing the petition, but getting involved in redesigning governments and institutions. I think there's a lot of interest in the ways and has been for some time that digital technology, like you said, can democratize and that it gives anyone anywhere the power to, to engage in political decision making or campaigning. So that's one thing. There's, of course, a bigger literature on two concerning issues of the digital divide. Not everyone has access to digital technology or has the capabilities or time or resources to engage online and also the digital surveillance. So we know increasingly states are using surveillance technologies to monitor what citizens, what NGOs are doing online. So they're two countervailing factors that I think are of concern. So I don't think it's all a rosy picture. And I think we also, we need to be aware of majoritarian impulses. And what I mean by that is obviously there are different interpretations of what democratic values look like. Is democracy about going with what the majority think is best or should there be some protection for minority rights? And I think we've seen in many instances where it's just about pure majoritarian, it's much harder to get protections, say for minority groups like, for instance, refugees which is one of the examples in my book. But I also talk about Maori and indigenous rights in New Zealand and how we take a majoritarian perspective of trying to mobilize people to take to the streets. It could be quite difficult to mobilize a large enough majority. But 
if groups are more focused on trying to shape and lead public opinion and transform it, we can actually see some really impressive and interesting changes. And you discussed how different organizations are cooperating. It seems like these groups are mobilizing towards positive ends. As you analyze the messaging, tapping into feelings of belonging or outrage, do you have any criticism of them? What did you find? So one way I boil it down is that the way they have for some time thought about their impact is in terms of things like vanity metrics. These are metrics which are like the growthiness of a campaign. So how many people sign a petition in the first 24 hours or how many members are returning for action on a regular basis? How many members do you have? So just having a really big email list of people who you can send out an email to is a source of power for these organizations. And if that's your biggest source of power, then you can easily become very focused on trying to just grow the number of members on that email list and then trying to engage them even on very easy or facile campaigns. However, I also point out that some of the organizations have become aware of this limitation, have become aware that if they're so rapid response and they're so reactive all the time, they're dropping important campaigns and that actually they do need to have long-term goals which could be around, you know, changing the nature of international finance or capitalism, or it could be around climate, or it could be on LGBT rights, but their advantage is running rapid response. So in a way, they have to sort of be thinking in a long term and then acting really strategically when they see those windows of opportunity and maybe not dropping campaigns so quickly. Because if you're multi-issue and you're always reacting to when members care about something, but then you're also dropping a campaign, it means that you're not doing anything to sort of carry forward the issue when members do lose interest always been fascinating for me. New Zealand is a special case in terms of the women leaders and suffrage being established there. Why do you think that New Zealand has been so progressive in that area? I think there are some good stories about it. You know, New Zealand has been strong in terms of giving women the right to, to vote very early. It was the first country. And actually just in the last couple of weeks, the New Zealand parliament became a majoritarian woman. The weeks, the New Zealand parliament became a majoritarian woman. So that was another, another win for women. But I would be hesitant to put it on the pedestal. And I think it's easy in the international arena to see New Zealand as this kind of like progressive human rights, women's rights champion. But there's a lot, unfortunately, in our past that needs to also be highlighted and discussed. New Zealand is a settler state. You know, it's built off confiscated Maori land. And it has for you know, many in its past been part of building global institutions, including the UN, based on racial hierarchies. So to give you a concrete example, in the League of Nations, when it was being set up, New Zealand was opposed. So the, the Japanese government said in 1919 at the Paris Peace Conference, we think part of the League of Nations and part of this new world order after World War I should be acknowledging racial equality. And New Zealand and the US were opposed. And even though it got majority support, Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, scuppered it. New Zealand also claimed mandates. New Zealand was very, very delighted to get a mandate system, which meant that they could inherit a German colony of Samoa and then violently suppressed the rebellion in Samoa. So I raise these because I think it's important for any country to really interrogate its own history and position. And so as you think about the future and some teachers or life lessons that have been important to you and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think it's important 
in addition to what you learn in the classroom, what you learn outside of the classroom. And for me, at least, that's about, you know, the conversations you have with somebody on the street, with your neighbors, learning and integrating and reflecting what you've learned in class and interrogating it and critiquing it and getting involved in debates at home with your family and friends, but also taking the time out for yourself, like to enjoy nature. And that's a really big, important part for me of, of balancing the head work, the intellectual thinking with, you know, going for big, long cycles in the hills above Bologna or swimming in the sea when I'm back in New Zealand or those sorts of activities that, you know, keep us alive and attuned to the natural world, which is unfortunately not, you know, in such a good condition anymore, but there are still wonderful places to see and enjoy. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. We hope that you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.